So let's turn in our Bibles to the first letter of John. So 1 John. If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 1021. But last week, Pastor Ed took us through the first four verses of this first epistle of John. And he also gave us a bit of an overview of it as well. And I'm really excited to be able to present second message in the series of the book of 1 John, as we continue discussing fellowship with God and the reality of sin. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it does not return void, and we thank you, Lord, that we can look to it for, for truth. Lord, we thank you so much um, that you have, you have sent your son, Jesus. Lord, that it's not on our own strength that we come to you. But God, your Holy Spirit empowers us to repent of our sin, to have faith in Jesus and to follow through in obedience in our lives. We thank you for the continual work of sanctification in our hearts. And Lord, we thank you that if we are believers, if we are children of God, Lord, we have an advocate in Jesus Christ, one who comes to our side, comes to our aid, intercedes for us with the Father. And I just pray that you would help us to surrender to him each and every day and to walk in the light as you are in the light. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So in the first four verses of John, we saw that John's aim in this epistle is to declare the word of life, the eternal life, that was with the Father and has been manifested in Jesus Christ. We see that in the first two verses. And also that we might have fellowship with the Father and the Son, just as the apostles did. Now the theme of this epistle is how to live in genuine fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Now there are several purposes that John has in this epistle, it's first off to describe genuine salvation, second, to call out false teaching, and if I may add a third, in verse 4, we see that our joy may be complete, that we may have fullness of joy. So to have fullness of joy, we must experience the kind of life that comes from having fellowship with God. Now in our text today, we're going to look at 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. And we're going to look at the basic principles for fellowship. And then in this text, 
John discusses the basis for our fellowship with God. He also describes the place of sin and how it can affect that fellowship. So if you'll look with me at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not, only for, uh, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So in verse 5, we notice the premise for having fellowship with God. The premise for having fellowship with God. And the first is that God is light. Now, throughout Scripture, the idea or the concept of light is often used to describe that which is good, righteous, and true. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, it says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Because God is light, then he must always be thought of in this way, that he is good, he is righteous, and he is true. Now, verse 5 also says, in him is no darkness at all. Now, the idea or concept of darkness obviously would represent the opposite of light, which is evil, unrighteousness, and falsehood. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Therefore, we can never think of God as accepting or tolerant of sin, excusing it in any way. Now, most of us have heard the story of the flood, but in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and going on, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And most of us know that 
The story goes on that God told Noah to build an ark for him and his family, to bring together the animals from around the world so that they could be saved from the worldwide flood. God has no tolerance for sin. He does not excuse our sin in any way. So our application is that we must know and recognize that God is good, righteous, and true, and he has zero tolerance for wickedness and sin. Now with this basic understanding clearly established of what God is, John now, in the, next, in the following verses, addresses some false claims that have been made concerning fellowship with God. And the first we see in verses 6 and 7, we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness. This is the first false claim, that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness. Well, why is this claim false? Well, first of all, because fellowship means to have something in common. We've seen that God is light, he is good, he is righteous, and he is true. But walking in darkness would then mean that we are going against everything that God stands for. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, it says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught him as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We cannot walk in darkness while claiming to have fellowship with God. This claim is also false because we are literally lying. In verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We are literally lying to ourselves and to God when we say that we have fellowship with God, yet we are still walking as if we are in the world. We are also false in what we do. We do not practice the truth. Instead, we should walk in the light as he is in the light. This means instead of living a life that's characterized by evil, unrighteousness, and error, we should 
live a life in harmony with God's goodness, righteousness, and truth. And only at this point will we experience fellowship with God, fellowship with one another. And we can share in the life that is eternal and provides fullness of joy. Now, in verse 7, it says we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So this suggests that walking in the light does not imply sinlessness, which we will address momentarily. It does not imply sinlessness any more that walking in darkness implies total absence of good. Rather, walking in light suggests that we are making progress in our lives under the positive influence of God's light, which is also known as progressive sanctification. Walking in light also means that we live a life enjoying the cleansing power of Jesus' blood as we walk in obedience. So the first false claim was that We have fellowship with him, yet we walk in darkness. The second false claim is in verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The second false claim that John is addressing here is that people are saying we have no sin. Now John may be making reference to statements made by professing Christians who thought that they had become sinless. Now, there's a much-repeated urban legend about 19th century Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon in which he debunked perfectionism in a memorable way. And perfectionism is basically the idea that as a Christian in this life, you can get to a point where you are completely sinless. Now, It's debated whether or not this story actually happened, but it still provides us a really good picture of our sin nature. Spurgeon supposedly was at a conference where a preacher taught perfectionism in a very outspoken manner and even claimed to have reached a state of sinless perfection himself. Now, Spurgeon didn't challenge him on the spot, He didn't say anything right at the moment. Instead, the next morning, he poured a pitcher of milk over the man's head, to which this perfectionist responded with the kind of rage and hostility you'd expect from any sinner. Perfectionism debunked. And I guarantee that most, if not all of us, would have responded in the same manner, no matter how perfect we may claim to be. This man claimed that he had no sin. Now, the consequences of such a claim, first of all, are self-deceit. We are deceiving ourselves into thinking that we have no sin. We're also living in error. Again, the truth is not in us. And at this point, the consequences of such a claim or that we are still walking in darkness, not in light. 
Instead, in verse 9, it tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Then God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness through his mercy. So God makes it possible for us to continue in fellowship with him. The next false claim that John addresses is that we have not sinned. In verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, which means not sinned at all, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. Now this claim may have been made by some denying that they have ever sinned in their entire lives. That's quite the claim. Now there is a self-proclaimed progressive Christian reverend, who I will not mention by name, but during a sermon, again, using that term pretty generously, he said, quote, Be authentic to who you are, because you are who God created you to be, and you are good. I don't believe in that awful notion of original sin. End quote. And he goes on to claim that the doctrine of original sin was created by Augustine and is a man-made false doctrine. Now, when we, we refer to the term original sin, we're talking about Adam's sin of disobedience in the garden and how it affected the rest of humanity. And it can be defined as the moral corruption we possess as a consequence of Adam's sin, resulting in a sinful disposition manifesting itself in habitually sinful behavior. Now, that's just a long way of saying, because Adam sinned, we also sin. In Romans 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Let's also look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, and also recorded in Luke 18, verse 19. He says, no one is good except God alone. This reverend says, you are who God created you to be, and you are good. Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. And Paul tells us in Romans 310, as he quotes the Psalms, that none is righteous. No, not one. Now the consequences of saying that we have not sinned, the consequences of this claim are grievous. First of all, we make God a liar. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23 
It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we say we have not sinned, then we are making God a liar. And John also tells us that his word is not in us. How can anyone who makes these types of claims hope to have true fellowship with God and enjoy the life this fellowship gives? Fellowship with God does not occur by making claims that turn God into a liar. Now, John affirms that we do sin, but he's not seeking to encourage it. He is actually writing to discourage it, as we see in the first verse of chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Fellowship with God requires that a person takes sin seriously. Our application following these false claims is we must take sin as seriously as God does by recognizing our own sin, yielding to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and confessing our sins to a God that is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, to appreciate further how serious God takes sin, we also learn in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2 that fellowship with God requires an advocate. Fellowship with God requires an advocate. In verse 1, it says, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, the word advocate literally means to call to one's side or to one's aid. It's also a term that's used in court of law to denote a legal assistant or a counsel for the defense. And generally, it's, it's the one who pleads another's case or an intercessor. Jesus is the perfect advocate because he is righteous. As sinners, we are alienated from God. In Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But Jesus was righteous. Jesus was perfect. Jesus was without sin. Therefore, he is a fit representative to come before God on our behalf. And the author of Hebrews also makes the point that though righteous, though perfect, he understands our situation perfectly. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And later in the book of Hebrews in chapter 4, it also says, Since then we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Praise the Lord that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In verse 2, we also see that he himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation, what does that word mean? Well, it means an appeasing. So, for example, the pagan worshipers would often offer sacrifices to appease their gods, hoping that they would not punish them. In the New Testament, it is God, not man, who offers the appeasing sacrifice. Later in, in John's uh, first letter here, we see in, ver- in chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Through his death on the cross, Jesus is the means by which God can show mercy to the sinner. And this also explains how God can be just, how we see in verse 9, it says that God is just, and still forgive sin. Because the punishment was given to Jesus, the justice and wrath of God was satisfied. Now this wonderful propitiation, this gift, was given to cover all types of sin. And it's offered to the entire world. But it is accessed only by those who believe in Jesus. As Pastor Ed often says, the gift of salvation is inclusive in that it is open to anyone. But it is exclusive because it is accessed only by those who confess and repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. You must come to God on his terms. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, Paul gives us a short synopsis of the gospel. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So our fellowship with God is not earned by anything that we do. Because we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. We cannot appease God on our own doing. Only the sacrifice of Jesus could do that. Our application is this. We must utilize our advocate, Jesus, by calling out to him to come to our aid, knowing he can sympathize with us in our weakness and that his sacrifice was sufficient to cover over our sins. In this first chapter of, of John's first letter, and even a little bit into the second, John makes it clear upon what basis we can have fellowship with God and enjoy the life that provides fullness of joy. To have fellowship with God, we who are Christians must not walk in darkness, but walk in the light of God's goodness, righteousness, and truth. We must also admit that we have sinned and that we do sin. And finally, we must utilize our advocate, Jesus, whom God provides as the propitiation for our sins. In verse 9 of chapter 1, John explained how those who are already children of God, those who are a part of God's family, can utilize the cleansing power of the blood of Jesus through faith, confession, and prayer. But how about those who are not in Christ? How about the alien sinner that because of their sin, they have been separated from God. Well, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter is quoted and he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, the action steps that we can take if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ, Confess your sins to God. Admit that you have sinned. You cannot reach a place of sinless perfection this side of eternity. But recognize that you have 
an advocate in Jesus Christ. He is the one that satisfied God's wrath on your behalf. Go to him in prayer because he can sympathize with your weaknesses. But if you are not in Christ today and if you hear the things that I'm saying and they're confusing to you or it's the first time that you've, you've heard anything like this before, let's look back at Romans chapter 3. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. His grace is a gift. It's not something that you can try to work to on your own. But it's something that God is freely offering to you. And so I'll repeat what Peter says. Repent of your sin, meaning confess them and turn from your sin. And eventually, be baptized with water and continue in obedience to the Lord. Now, it's not the act of baptism that saves you. The repentance and the faith that God gives as a gift is what brings salvation but when we are baptized, we are showing not only God, but our fellow Christians that we intend to continue walking with the Lord for the rest of our lives. And I can assure you, because Jesus said it himself, that he will not lose a single one of his sheep. If you are a part of God's family, if you are a child of God, nothing can separate you from his love Nothing can snatch you from his hand. You are secure in him forever. As we continue looking through the rest of the first letter of, of John, I encourage you to read the text that we're going to be looking at each and every week. And understand, try to understand the, the, the flow of everything that's going on. Back when John wrote this letter, there weren't chapter separations. We see at the end of verse 10 that the idea continues through each and every chapter of this book. And again, I remind you of the main themes of John's first letter is that he is trying to describe genuine salvation, to call out false teaching, but ultimately that we might have fullness of joy in Christ. And that only comes when we walk in the light as God is in the light. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much um, 
for sending Jesus. Lord, we thank you that our salvation was not won by something that we did. Thank you that Jesus is our advocate, that he was the perfect sacrifice, that he took our place on the cross that we deserve to die on. Each and every one of us have, have sinned and fallen short of your glory. But Lord, you still, in your mercy and your grace, you see fit to extend your hand to us, to offer us the gift of salvation. We just thank you that we have Christ as, the, as our hope. No matter what comes in this life, we are secure in him forever. That nothing can separate us from your love. That nothing can snatch us out of your hand. Or we rest in that assurance this morning. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.